Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. I have a very special guest on the show with me. His name is Ray Rhodes, and he is the author of Susie Spurgeon, the biography of Charles Spurgeon's wife, and a book that will be available today to purchase yours till heaven and then... So make sure you tune into the episode. It was a fantastic interview to get a deep dive into uh, this, the process that Ray took, his uncovering of the life of Charles and Susie, and just kind of getting a, a different perspective of what we know and who we think the Prince of Preachers is. So uh, tune in, and I pray that you enjoy this episode. As I say at the end of this show, that you will be able to capture all... Uh, all of his information will be in the show notes, so make sure you check those out. And uh, guys, I hope this episode is enjoyable. And that's all I got. So here's the episode. Enjoy. God bless. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Undying Light. I am your host, Alex, and I have a very special guest with me today. And uh, before I introduce you to him, uh, I just want to kind of set this up for you. This is a really uh, unique project that this author has taken upon himself to, uh, to write about, and I really hope that through this interview you get the opportunity to uh, just go and grab these books and explore uh, the life of Charles Spurgeon. And I kind of gave a little bit of away, but before I do too much, I'm going to turn it over to him. His name is Ray, and I want to have him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Alex. Uh, thanks for having me on your uh, program. I appreciate that. It's uh, good to be with you. Absolutely. I'm down here in Georgia, and you're over there in Iowa, so it's not too far away, just no. a couple of, couple of days. <laughs> yeah, and, and I bet it's a lot warmer there in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right now, it's like 34 degrees, and the oh. wind is blowing cloudy, so it's a pretty cold day, but nothing <laughs> like you guys. <laughs> yeah, we got about 18 inches of snow on the ground, so I think I'll trade you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you keep that. You keep that. Uh, no, thank you, brother. It's great to great to be on, learn a little bit more about what you're up to. And um, my name is Ray. I'm married to Lori for 33 years. We have six daughters, uh, two son-in-laws, soon to be three son-in-laws, five granddaughters uh, from Georgia. I lived in New Orleans for about three years during my first tour of seminary in the 80s and uh, graduated a second time in 2016. Uh, with the D-Men, pastor of a church here in town, Grace Community Church in Dawsonville, Georgia. And that's a, been there quite a long time, planted the church, and it's a sweet part of our life and ministry. But we're, uh, we're thankful. God has been very kind to us and our family and our ministry. And having the opportunity to write for Moody Publishers has been really a wonderful I uh, just would give a shout out to those guys. It's like working for family, ministry minded. Very thankful. Uh, this is my second book with Moody. 
The first one was Susie, the life and legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. And the second one is Yours Till Heaven, the untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon, releasing uh, February the 2nd. So uh, when maybe when your folks are hearing this podcast, uh, it, it will be releasing that day tomorrow. Yeah, that would be <laughs> tremendous. And yeah, as you know, I kind of mentioned before we started the show, I uh, we'd been planning this interview for uh, f- at least four or five weeks. And, uh, you know, I was moving in this tra- time period and then I actually started back in my seminary courses today. And so I, when I was talking to uh, Kevin from Moody about getting this all scheduled, I was, I didn't quite put the two and two together. I'm like, okay, I got seminary classes and then I have to go and record an interview <laughs> afterwards. So, but it all worked out really well. And I'm very excited to have you on because, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, you know, the reformed community for one. And for those who listen to my show really know, and they follow me on Instagram, they know that I have kind of a very select personality in regards to who I uh, post quotes from. And it probably is very rare that a day goes by where a Charles Spurgeon quote doesn't come on my page. And yeah, and I, I am infatuated with man. I think he's done such a tremendous job with, uh, you know, with his life and his legacy you know, and, and with everybody and, you know, uh, Charles and I wouldn't agree on every single piece of doctrine. And I think that's, uh, appropriate for most people. But I, at the end of the day, you know, what he's brought to the church and the fire and passion that he has for the gospel is, you know, rarely matched, if ever. And, you know, looking at, this book that you are that's releasing tomorrow, it it really captivates his love in his marriage. And it shows just how dedicated he was to his wife and to Christ. And, you know, he really takes that command from Paul, uh, you know, that we are to love our, our wives just as Christ loves the church. And, and I think he, you know, is very evident in, in this book. And so, you know, I kind of want to, turn it over to you here and and let you kind of explain, you know, the thought process and how these two books are connected and kind of what drew you into uh, writing about uh, Susie and Charles and, and uh, how this kind of project came about. Yeah. Like, uh, like many pastors, I've been uh, like you fascinated by Spurgeon for quite a long time. I think I read my first Spurgeon biography in 1990, maybe. Uh, and that's interesting. You know, when Spurgeon died in 1892, he there was a new biography that came out every month for two years. So that's 24 biographies in two years. That's almost hard to believe. And then throughout time, there's continued to be biographies of Spurgeon, doctoral studies, uh, articles, uh, everything under the sun. He's been looked into. And yet what I found is the more I dig, the more there is to be found. Uh, there's the story is not yet fully told of Charles Spurgeon, nor of his marriage, nor of his ministry. He's like the great Alps. There's a there's a there's a range of Spurgeon, and we're all uh, those of us who are interested in him and doing research on him are finding that uh, we can tell stories of Spurgeon uh, long beyond my life. Uh, <laughs> our great 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 grandchildren will, I think, still be studying Charles Spurgeon, and there's really not that many. Christian leaders in history like that. There, there are a number, but uh, he's really a unique character. I, I would say he's the most read, studied, researched Christian leader in history, probably. Uh, there's Luther, of course. There's Calvin, uh, uh, Augustine, Augustine. Uh, but Spurgeon is is certainly, I think, the most widely read of of all of those. When I was uh, doing doctoral work, I was exploring the spirituality of Charles and Susie's marriage. And during that time, I really barely knew anything about Susanna Spurgeon and barely knew anything about Spurgeon's marriage. I knew about the preaching stuff, all the things we tend to gravitate to. But I began to uncover and discover really a, a woman, a fascinating woman. Uh, Susie Spurgeon, and almost nothing has been told of her. There was a small biography in 1903, a few articles here and there about Susanna Spurgeon, but most Spurgeon biographies sort of opened up, introduced her like this, uh, his wedding, 
Charles Spurgeon married Susanna Thompson, daughter of R.B. Thompson, a Falcon Square. That's almost every <laughs> single biography. And then we know nothing about her early life. Mm -hmm. And she left almost nothing behind uh, as well. So I had to, uh, looking at that book just for a second, I had to go through census reports and legal documents and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of ancestral kind of uh, studies to discover uh, even her mother's name, uh, which was Susanna as well, by the way. And, and she died young, uh, 1865. Uh, so that, anyway, all of that led me to the discovery of this lady. And that led to the biography of Susanna Spurgeon that I wrote that was, that came out in 2018 from Moody Publishers. And as a result of that, uh, I'd learned a lot about their marriage and I wanted to, to learn more. And so uh, I, I proposed uh, this new book to Moody. And like the first time, they were very excited uh, about that and have been very supportive all along the way. So I started finding out, you know, Spurgeon, we know him as the last Puritan. Some call him. Some call him the Prince of Preachers. Mm -hmm. uh, he was called the governor by, <laughs> uh, by some of his students. But I discovered there's another uh, descriptor we could hang on Spurgeon that I don't think anyone's ever put on him. And it's the great lover. Uh, Spurgeon was the great lover of one woman and one woman only and one woman tenderly and devotedly for all of their 36 year marriage and the couple of year period of engagement prior to that. Uh, and so as we were looking at the book, they're writing the story of their marriage. It was actually someone from Moody that was reading one of the letters I had I, I put in my manuscript and it was signed yours till heaven. And then, and that letter was written in 1850, December of 1855. Uh, Spurgeon was about to board a train for Colchester to visit his parents for Christmas. He was engaged to Susanna, so he was telling her goodbye. They would be married in a couple of weeks. And as he got on the train and it lunged forward, he picked up his pen and he dipped it in ink and he wrote her a love letter as he did often. In fact, every day Spurgeon was separated from Susanna, he wrote her a letter, wow. which is, in itself is amazing. Mm -hmm. And he, he signed that letter, yours till heaven and then. And so we, that's, uh, that forms, that gives us the framework for this book, yours, uh, one woman till heaven for a lifetime, full, total commitment, exclusive commitment. Uh, and then he adds these other two words and then, and I actually deal with that later in the book, Spurgeon's vision and Susanna's vision as well, that their love for one another would would surpass uh, this life, that they would love one another perfectly in heaven, not as husband and wife, as Jesus taught, we will not be married in heaven, but we will love one another perfectly. And they believe that they would worship God, know one another, love one another perfectly eternally in heaven. And so they had this eternal vision that really pulled them uh, throughout their marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely, <clears throat> it's unique. And, you know, as I was kind of working myself through some of this material on Charles and, and, and Susan, I, I just kind of kept coming back to this, to these ideas that, you know, um, especially in, you know, in the period that Charles was a pastor, marriage was not, looked at in this fashion that Charles really embraced it in. And <clears throat> I'd even say probably today, we don't hear a lot of uh, pastors this passionate about their spouse. And, you know, it's pretty evident with society today and how marriage is kind of, you know, lightly taken. And yet these two had something so unique and so concrete that it just, it really sets a precedent for what preachers and godly men and should be pursuing in a marriage and in a relationship. And so, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, when you started this project on, on Susie and started looking at her biography, uh, and then you transitioned into yours till heaven. And then, you know, what were some of the things that you, you thought you knew in terms of like a presuppositional, but were, were, you know, taken aback or had that 
premise changed anything like that you know like what did you what was kind of an eye-opening piece of knowledge that you picked up on as you started this exploration yeah uh like i said of Susanna spurgeon we almost knew nothing i think a lot of people knew some basic facts about her that she was married to charles that uh, she was a great sufferer and she did suffer greatly and that she gave away books to poor pastors that's all i knew i didn't know that she authored five standalone books uh, three devotional books, two other books that are almost uh, autobiographical, uh, biographical of her life, uh, books about the uh, book fund that she led. Uh, and as well, she contributed early uh, in their engagement to a book that Spurgeon put together. It, uh, her name is not on it, but it's a collection of, of uh, sayings from Thomas Brooks, the Puritan. And the title is a play on his name. Uh, smooth stones taken from ancient brooks. Wow. Spur- <laughs> Spurgeon loved the Puritans. Mm-hmm. And then after Spurgeon died, uh, I was taken aback by the fact that she was the primary moving force in planting a church south of London in a place called Bexhill on Sea, uh, Beulah Baptist Church. Uh, she went down there uh, while her home was being worked on and she was in better health even after Spurgeon died. Uh, she, her health recovered a bit. She was able to travel a little bit more. And she asked uh, someone, where's the local Baptist church? They said, well, ma'am, there's not one here. And that bothered her. And she went back home and started praying and ultimately helped choose the pastor of the church, led the fundraising campaign for the church. And that church still exists today. And during my research for the first book, I was able to go and worship in that church. And it's uh, now I think they may have updated it since I was there, but it's much like it was in her day. Uh, a lot of it's unchanged in many ways. So that all those were very surprising facts about her. As far as Charles goes, because I didn't I mean, I knew that he was a. He was a very famous preacher, of course. I knew he was the prince of preachers. I'd read his sermons, read biographies. I knew all of those things. But I don't think I quite understood the sort of celebrity that he had. I don't mean that in a negative way. Charles was not seeking to be an entertainer or like a celebrity as we think of it. But that's just what happened. People pressed in to see him. And he, he even said that he could call a meeting on a snowy, late on a snowy night at short notice and it would be packed with mm. people outside, an outside meeting. Mm-hmm. And there's one account in the book that I found in a newspaper uh, from a newspaper report uh, for Spurgeon preaching in a particular place. And it held about 2,000 people. And they had to shut the doors and, and actually bar the doors to keep people from breaking down the doors and overrunning the place. And folks outside were uh, upset. They wanted to get in, but there was nowhere to put them. He was a guest preacher away from home, Charles was, and they were banging on the building. They were yelling. (laughs) Uh, And it unnerved him because it brought back memories of an earlier time in his ministry when he had been in a building that held that was uh, at 10,000 people inside, 10,000 people outside trying to get in. Someone had yelled, fire, fire, and when they did, uh, panic ensued. Seven people were trampled to death. Numerous others were hospitalized, seriously injured. Mm. Spurgeon collapsed and almost quit the ministry. So he had these sorts of, this sort of uh, following uh, everywhere he went. Uh, there was people trying to, to get near him. In fact, early in his life, early in his ministry, when the beginning of his fame, there were folks who would try to find lockets of his hair. And uh, they, there's accounts of those being sold. Uh, just a clipping of his hair to put in a locket and then be sold. Wow. Uh, he was in newspapers frequently, uh, both positively and negatively. He was uh, criticized. He was opposed by some in the secular press and the religious press. Uh, so I didn't I don't think I think I knew how famous he was, but I, I don't think I I think I knew. I mean, I knew he was famous. I didn't realize how famous he was. And one particular author says that Spurgeon was not only one of the most important Victorian preachers of his age, probably the most important Victorian preacher. He was one of the most important Victorians of, in, in the world. And uh, I don't think he's far off the mark from that. And Spurgeon, right. 
Uh, Spurgeon's life and ministry and influence touched every area, the social concerns with the orphanage, home for widows, uh, 66 uh, social ministries connected to his church, all driven by the gospel, of course. And uh, his, his writing, uh, politicians sought his ear and his favor. Uh, everywhere he went, of all spheres of life, though he was really the voice of the, the common man and woman, he was respected and regarded and considered, at least, by people from every class of society. Yeah, that's that's a <clears throat> substantial weight, you know, to carry. And, you know, you try to maybe put that into perspective in today's culture. I mean, there's not, especially from a biblical perspective, there's not many pastors who are being sought after in that capacity, especially from, you know, government leaders or uh, state and level local leaders. You know, it's essential that uh, if you're essentially, you could say that if you're a biblical preacher, you're probably ignored most of the time by government leaders. Whereas somebody of Charles Spurgeon's stature was, you know, they chased after him, as you said. And, and I did hear that. I did hear that story about the fire, fire in the building and that, you know, that, that to me just is one of those things that really kind of captivates the, the draw that people have on him and, and his, you know, uh, ability to capture a crowd. So, yeah, yeah. And as you, you kind of alluded to this question, this answer already, but I kind of want to see if I can just get one particular thing out of it. Uh, what was the most surprising thing that you learned of either, of either Charles or Susan or, or, or both, uh, as you explored this new book? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the Spurgeons are filled with surprises. Uh, uh, there's no doubt about that. I mentioned some of the surprising things about Susan, Susie and about uh, Charles as well. But I think the way uh, that they endured a great hardship and never lost any sense of their the fervency of their love for one another. I, I was thinking about this recently, and I, I based it on something Spurgeon's son Thomas said after Susanna died. Uh, if if Spurgeon had social media today, if, if he had uh, access to uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else is out there, I think he would use that. And I, I think he would use it very wisely, but I also think he would use it to talk about his wife. Mm. And the reason I say that is Thomas Spurgeon, when uh, Su- Susanna died, said uh, something, some beautiful things about his mother. He, uh, but he also said, my dad was never ashamed, either verbally, and I'm, this is not a direct quote. This is, I'm putting it in my words. He, uh, my dad was not ashamed either verbally and in print to declare her praises. He was unashamed of his love for Susie, and he just spilled it out. Uh, his heart was open. His mouth was open to talk about his wife. And I remember reading a piece of blog post. I don't remember the author. And he said that uh, one of the ways that, uh, and there, there's some wives that just don't want to be mentioned on social media <laughs> and, you know, and what they don't want their pictures out there. But yeah. he said it's uh, a lot of times uh, a guy who is unwilling or doesn't show any interest in his social media postings about his wife is usually a, an indicator that there may be a problem. Mm. And he had actually uh, done some research on that and found uh, guys that had fallen in their marriage and in their ministry uh, often had li- very little to say about their wives on social media. So, I mean, I'm just theorizing here. I don't know that Spurgeon would have used social media, but I think he would have because he was pretty open to getting the word out in various ways in his time. So he was unashamed. And so we think of him as the prince of preachers. We, we have, we think of him as a, as a great preacher, as a great writer. I mean, uh, what 50, uh, uh 135 books, I think mm-hmm. that Spurgeon penned 63 volumes of sermons. He was a writer. Uh, he was a writer of letters. Uh, it's estimated that some weeks he would write 500 letters a week. Wow. <laughs> Uh, with a dip pen. That's, mm-hmm. It's just an amazing amount of productivity in uh, his life. He 
he said that uh, he he had almost no, almost never a spare moment. All of his time was was uh, committed, uh, and he it was almost it, it was reflective and a bit sad. He he was telling his friend uh, Pike G. Holden Pike. He said, I, "I have almost no time, but I have my garden." He said. <laughs> And he had a garden outside of his study and that garden, he said, I don't think, I don't think God, uh, I think God gave me that garden for my joy. And he appreciated the simple things of life. He appreciated birds and, and cows and and horses and flowers. And he and Susie did that together, uh, walking, looking at these things, exploring nature. So it's surprising to think, I guess, that the Prince of Preachers, a great theologian, a great writer, respected in all these spheres of life, had such a wonderful and expressive, romantic marriage. And I think Spurgeon's marriage, of course, comes from his understanding of the Bible. But I, I, in the book, I, I argue that uh, two major influences made Spurgeon the kind of husband that he was. Uh, well, he, of course, and beyond that is is his parents and grandparents, but those are the Puritans and George Whitfield. The Puritans, Spurgeon had uh, probably 12,000 volumes in his library when he died. He'd given away a lot even then. And half of those were either by the Puritans or about the Puritans. So he was heavily influenced by the Puritans. And if you ever get the chance to read some of the Puritan love letters, it's very similar to the way Spurgeon wrote to Susie. Leland Riken has a book called Worldly Saints, the Puritans as they really were. And he has some of those letters in there. And it's really moving and really expressive, very, very romantic and powerful. So I think Spurgeon got some of that from his Puritan heroes. From George Whitfield, George Whitfield's marriage was not so much a great example. They loved each other. But George Whitfield, was, his marriage was almost like a, a, a way to enhance his ministry. Uh, he was so singularly devoted to his public ministry, as was Spurgeon. But Whitfield, in Whitfield's case, he didn't seem to spend this sort of time cultivating the more intimate and romantic side of marriage. So Spurgeon was singularly devoted to his ministry. His public ministry was first and foremost. And yet he didn't lose the sensitivity and the tenderness and the romantic expressiveness that he had for uh, Susie. And I think that could be lost on some folks that only see Spurgeon as this magnetic preacher and this sort of quote machine. Mm-hmm. He's uh, someone said he's the most uh, he uh, he's the most tweetable person, Christian in all of history. Yeah, I think L- Luther might argue that point. I'm not sure. <laughs> Luther's pretty tweetable too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, you made a comment, and I really want to kind of see if we can expand this a little bit here. That if Spurgeon today had social media, he would often talk about Susie and he would often, you know, reiterate his love and compassion for her while potentially holding, you know, kind of an online ministry, if you would. And, and I know in some circles, uh, online ministries are kind of, uh, you know, frowned upon, but, you know, from, being in the church, you know, you can start to see how sometimes, especially with the this COVID pandemic and everything that we're going through, having the ability for people to hear sermons and hear the gospel and, you know, be fed daily through quotes and sermons or small uh, devotions and things like that is edifying. And it does help kind of keep people you know, uh, keep their hopes up in, in at times when uncertainty is rampant. So wh- what would your perspective be? And this is purely speculative, obviously, because Spurgeon is not with us anymore. But what do you think his life would look like in today's world with the such a demands that are pressed upon pastors and ministers and to, you know, to kind of be involved with everything? Do you think he would just be... Do you think he would, you know, kind of still have that simplicity of his life where it's his public ministry and then he has these things that he enjoys with Susie, you know, the nature and things like that. But and then or, or you know, or do you think he would, uh, 
kind of, I don't want to say fall to the whims of what a lot of pastors end up doing, but I'm just kind of curious because it feels like there's such a different dynamic between his age and ours that we are in today. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's part of the challenge of, of uh, reading history is we don't want to read our age into theirs Mm. and project on them what what we, what we see and experience now necessarily. Right. I tend to think that, uh, you know, Spurgeon read six substantive volumes every week. He, re- uh, if you ever look at his Sword and Trial magazine, uh, he, I, I can't even imagine, can't even believe how many books he reviewed. So he's reading, he's reviewing, he's got the magazine from 1865 onward. Uh, his sermons are being edited every week from 1855 onward. Uh, the letters he's answering, the books he's writing, uh, the 66 ministries that are connected to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the ministry of the church that he's engaged in, all the different organizations and meetings that's connected there, the college. I mean, there, there's just not a lot, a lot of time left. I, I think that, you know, and, but, but Spurgeon advertised his sermons. He certainly used the media that he had available to him mm-hmm. to get the word out. And so I do think he would have found a wise use of social media. And I think that Susanna, who was really from 1868 uh, through much of the rest of her life, was an invalid and confined to home. I imagine she would have loved to have had, uh, if she, of course, she had no concept of this, but uh, she would have loved to be able to watch her husband preach and listen to him preach because she was not able to even go to church from that time forward, so sick, she, uh, so much was so sick she was. So I think that she would have used that. I think he would have uh, his sermons would have been posted. What, how much of it he would have been doing, or some staff would have been doing? I think that we would, yeah, we would open up our computer and there would be something from Spurgeon there. But uh, but I think that he would have the character. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, I find myself it's so tempting to wake up in the morning, grab the phone, start. I'm going to check messages real quick. I'm going to look at all. And I'm getting like you probably I'm getting messages on Instagram. I'm getting mm-hmm. messages on Twitter. I'm getting messages on Facebook. I'm getting text messages. I'm getting uh, old fashioned, you know, snail mm-hmm. mail email. <laughs> you know, and that's what I prefer is email, really. And, and <laughs> yep, pretty soon, yep. um, yeah, you know, you can uh-huh. a lot of time can scroll by as you're scrolling a lot of time can scroll by as piper said you know yeah. that uh, on the day of judgment uh, uh we'll not be able to say we didn't read the bible facebook and twitter and all those other things will rise up against us and remind us that the reason we didn't read the bible and pray more was not because we didn't have time as we think of all the time on social media so i think we can learn from that i right. think spurgeon would not have been scrolling mm-hmm. uh all, all the time as, as we tend to do. And he, like yeah. others, I think, you know, we wake up in the morning, really one of the first things that, that we should capture our mind is God's word. And I forget uh, which preacher it was who said that before I read anything from man, I first read something from God. Before I speak to any man, I first speak to God. And I think that's a good mm. uh, practice for the most part, that we wake up in yeah. the morning, we read our Bible, and we pray. And then maybe we have some time set apart for social media that this time, this time I'm going to check in. I know that's very hard to do because we carry it in our phone and our, yeah, in our back pocket and it's dinging us and it's buzzing mm-hmm. us and it's ringing on us <laughs> and all the demands uh, of that. So it's, it's uh, as you know, it's a double edged sword. I'm so thankful for podcasts like yours and the opportunity to extend the word and get the message out about mm-hmm. you know, my book. I mean, this is the way book publicity is done primarily. The days of traveling yeah. to bookstores and doing book signings and all of that, uh, that, that doesn't happen so much anymore. But you, just a, a word about the pandemic. You know, Spurgeon was ministering early in his ministry during the uh, cholera uh, pandemic, and uh, they kept meeting. You know, they, and, yeah. and some of it was, mm-hmm. a lot of it was near where his church was existed. So they met pretty much through that. And he, he had some very powerful things to say. And of course, he went door to door, essentially ministering to people who had that and felt that at any moment he was going to catch this disease himself and probably die. 
but God gave him some assurance that he was going to survive that. Mm-hmm. But he was visiting very sick people. He might visit them in the morning and they're dead by night. I mean, the deaths came quickly, rapidly. He was bar- He was visiting. He was burying yes. people. Mm-hmm. So these, this early part of his ministry in London, there was a ton, a ton of suffering that he had to endure. But somehow in God's providence, they were able to continue yeah. preaching the word and gathering for worship as best I can discern. Yeah, it's quite, <clears throat> it's quite a miracle that he kind you know, that he just kind of kept plowing through all that. And, and, and maybe I'll, I don't want to kind of make it a jab at modern preachers, but I kind of see, you know, Luther had the black plague that he dealt with, you know, uh, Spurgeon had his, and now we've got COVID. And in retrospect, it's like we're just, we're so acceptable to just close the doors in fear of unknown. And, you know, one of the things, and I'm, you know, I've been in uh, ministry for a few years as, you know, pulpit supply and, and filling in and things like that. But, you know, I'm at my first call now. And, you know, one of the things that my church was very adamant about when we were going through the interview process is that we don't close the doors. And, you know, I'm in a small farming community and there's two other churches in town and they both have been closed for a number of months, but we cannot close our doors. We have to stay open. We have to keep ministering to people. We have to keep sharing the gospel. And, I just find that to be such an interesting dynamic between what we've experienced in the last, you know, uh, 10, 12 months here versus, you know, the times of some of these other pastors who have gone past. And just, I, I just, I kind of sometimes feel like how easy we just decided to close our doors and, and, and kind of shut down business for a while and then replaced that with internet preaching and, you know, or, and, or podcasts or social, you know, social media type sermons and that when people need in-person preaching, they need this dynamic to, you know, kind of see and tangibly touch a person for the ministry. Um, so maybe this is kind of off the topic a little bit, but you kind of alluded to it too with Spurgeon's dynamics, uh, between his personal life and his ministry. I kind of want to see just like what your thoughts were and, and how you kind of unpacked it, the, dis- the discipline that he carried in his life. Can you speak to that maybe a little bit more? Cause it feels like, you know, he's got, you know, he read six books a week. He, you know, wrote hundreds of letters every week. He, he I mean, he wrote uh, sermons and preached and, and still had time for his wife and family. I mean, that's, that's uh that's a considerable amount of commitment that it takes for one man to carry that. Yeah, it's uh, again it, it does seem uh, almost impossible the sort of life that he lived and of course he died at 57 uh, I'm 59 <laughs> so 2 years younger than me Spurgeon has died and and some of that he worked himself to death mm-hmm. perhaps he definitely was geared in that direction. But I think one a couple of things explain help explain I don't know if you can explain mm-hmm. Spurgeon, but a couple of things help explain Spurgeon. One is mm-hmm. Susie, who was wholeheartedly committed to him and his ministry. So he he never left home. I mean, he left home many times sad to leave her behind because at some point, you know, 1868 and onward, she really couldn't travel with him. She did travel with him some those first years in the, you know across the Alps with him. And well, it's, it was in Calvin's church when Spurgeon preached in Calvin's church. Uh, she so she was with him, but then after that she was at home, and so he would long for her to be with him, but she couldn't. Uh, she could not. She simply could not travel. But one thing he knew is that when he left home, he was never concerned that his wife was begrudging mm-hmm. him. Uh, she was lonely for him. She wept over him, but she was not bitter towards his ministry. She 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 was with him. And I think knowing that he had that sort of a woman who loved Christ, who loved the Bible, who sought Jesus with her whole heart, and who was a minister, who ministered as best she could in her context, and she loved him and prayed for him, that really set him free to become the man that 
that we admire today. So that's one part of that puzzle. And she also helped him with his work. Like sermon prep, he'd call her in on Saturday night and have her read uh, or get books from the Puritans. He'd say, turn to page so-and-so, paragraph three, read. Mm. <laughs> read. He, he knew his book yeah. so well. She, so she helped him with sermon prep. She helped him with some letters. She assisted him in various ways. But there's another side of that story, another uh, piece of that puzzle, too, is that with all of these institutions that his church led, uh, Spurgeon had help. He had help at the church. He had help in the institutions, college, the orphanages, the orphanages, and the other places. And because Spurgeon became a man of means financially, he didn't have a lot of money when he died. He gave a lot of money away. He invested tons of money into pastors, into his church, into the college. And so, but a lot of money came through his hands. And he had the sort of home uh, that was central to his ministry. That's where he did most of his study and writing and uh, letters and books and everything else was at his home. And he generally had two secretaries with him at all times. Uh, they were men, male secretaries. But along with that, they had uh, household servants. So many people in the Victorian age, even middle class, even middle middle of the middle class, had a servant or two. Uh, these are not slaves. I mean, these are employees. They're getting paid. They're workers at the home. By the time Spurgeon dies, best I can discern, he had about nine of those. He had dressmakers. They had cooks. They had butler. They had uh, yardsmen, gardeners. They had all sorts of people that assisted him. And so when I come home uh, on, a, on a spring or summer day, uh, there's not any servants out here mowing my <laughs> yeah, grass. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't have any students not able to send to the British Library to do research for me. Spurgeon had students. He would send up there to uh, uh, young men from the church who would go do research for mm -hmm. him at times. Uh, and I'm thankful he yeah. had that, and that helped him to have a, a large and expansive ministry. But most pastors don't didn't have that. Most pastors don't have that today. Spurgeon was was blessed. So. I think it's true in any area of life, though, whether you have all that he had or not, any successful endeavor, and I mean that in the best sense of a godly, the godly sense of success, every successful endeavor requires teamwork. Yes. And I think pastors have to learn that because sometimes some of us tend to be, you know, Lone Ranger kind of people. We're going to jump on our horse and lead the, lead the way. Mm -hmm. But God has built us for communities, built us the church. Every member does his or her part for the building up of the body of Christ and the body grows. Christ is glorified through that. And that includes pastors. And so we we work best when we learn how to share uh, uh, responsibilities and work with other people and develop a team. Spurgeon seemed to be very gifted in that, even though he he, he felt he could do things faster himself. Uh, he even said something to that effect, mm. I think, in general. And I would say that about writing books, uh, sort of changing the subject a little mm -hmm. bit for me, because I have that sort of mentality, sort of bunker down, do my thing, you know, independent mindset. Uh, it's really helped me uh, because when you work with a publisher, you're not allowed to be a Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, and and after you start the process, you start saying, you start thinking. At least me, thank God. I mean, I've got people who are who are doing all sorts of things. You know, there are various editors uh, that are involved in the book. There are proofreaders that uh, works that work for Moody. There's Kevin, the publicist, who you worked with to yep. schedule this interview. Mm -hmm. uh, there's people out there doing the sales stuff, you know, talking to various sales outlets to get the books out there into various places. And so that that really frees me up uh, on the book side of my life, at least, to to write and to do enjoyable things like uh, be interviewed with you you here and other folks. And uh, it's it's really it's really a blessing. And that, that's really taught me a valuable lesson that we all need to be on a team and, and be a part of a team. And Spurgeon exemplified that. Hmm. And I think that is one way, one other component to his ability to do as much as he did. And the, I guess the final thing I would say is that Spurgeon was a very unique person. Uh, you know, every generation or, you know, there's a one or two or a few guys that are, or, or ladies that are just off the charts that God is, 
uh, poured out a, a giftedness and talents and abilities and energy levels to that accomplish uh, unbelievable task. And I think we'll be frustrated if we attempt to say, you know, if, if, Alex, if you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm still a young guy, a young family, I'm going to become Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Gonna, and, and, so what does Spurgeon do every day? I'm going to do that. I'm going to read six books a week. I'm going to answer mm-hmm. hundreds of letters. I'm not going to do it on a, t- on a computer either. I'm going to do it with a dip pen. Mm. Uh, <laughs> then you're going to be frustrated because God didn't make you to be Charles Spurgeon. He made right. you to be the husband of your wife and to pastor the church that you pastor and to mm-hmm. serve the podcast that you do. He's given you your talents and gifts and abilities all for God's glory and our good. And the same in our marriages. If we say, I'm going to have Spurgeon's marriage, I'm going to do what he and Susie did. Well, that's that's not going to work. What we can do is look at their marriage, learn from their lives, and, and distill down timeless truths. Like in every marriage, we need to be individually reading the Bible and individually praying. We need to be engaged in family worship. All things church did, uh, Spurgeon did. We need to go to church together. We need to witness, share Christ with others, share our resources, show hospitality. I mean, those are big uh, eternal truths that we need to be engaged in. But the specifics are going to look different in our marriage and our context. And uh, so, you know, maybe you could, maybe you'll try that tomorrow, Alex. You wake up, tell your, <laughs> tell your wife, say, hey, we're going to become Charles and Susanna Spurgeon from this day forward. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Just have uh, somebody like Paul, Paul Tripp or someone on the phone. You'll need some counsel, brother. Right. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll happen real quick. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up some great points because that's kind of where I was going to lead into was, you know, the fact that we all have our own vision that we have been given from God. And some of us are writers and pastors. Some of us are, you know, public radio speakers and pastors. Others are just, uh, you know, they, they've got their own, you know, ministry that they focus in on and, you know, and whatever your calling is from God, then that is what we are to pour ourselves into not trying to, you know, be the next Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther or John MacArthur, even today, it's what are we given to make the impact in the area that God has given us? And so, um, you know, as time is starting to get towards the end of the episode, I kind of want to just throw a few more questions at you. And first one is, is from your time uh, researching and writing yours till heaven, what is a couple big takeaways for you um, that you just really you think that you will just cherish for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I'll try to be quick with these last questions for you, brother. I've been very long winded. No, you're uh, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, the way they communicated with one another, that's something I want to do better. I've got a, I've got a good friend as a pastor and his wife. And um, I love the way he talks to his wife. And when I'm with him and she calls, uh, you know, the way he talks to her on the phone, the way he talks to her in person, the way he communicates with her, it's always been an example to me. I, I tend to get very distracted at times and and uh, forgetful and not as thoughtful. Uh, Spurgeon can be very distracted. He forgot her a couple of times. Uh, in fact, so it's not that he was perfect on this, but mm-hmm. overall, he was a very tender, a very uh, kind, a very sensitive a very thoughtful and a very creative communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way he wrote to her, the way he spoke to her, I want, I want to do that. I want to, <laughs> I want to be better in that regard than yeah. I am uh, rather than be so distracted with my own stuff that I forget my beloved wife who loves me and supports me like Susie did Charles and, and all the rest. So mm-hmm. uh, I want to be more, I want to be more like him in that regard. And also the ability to, uh, though he was suffered with depression the way he was able to rejoice in the Lord, to be Christ-centered in everything. I mean, I challenge any pastor or anybody to read a Spurgeon sermon, and you will not get very far into that sermon without finding Christ, mm-hmm. without finding Christ central, without finding the gospel, without knowing how to know Jesus Christ. And I think 
I mean, Spurgeon loved Jesus, but when he was before he was converted, he would go to churches and various places, and and he said I would hear some great sermons, and they'd be doctrinally correct. Uh, he thought some great moral challenges. He said, but I was having a difficult time hearing the simple gospel mm-hmm. from the pulpit. And I think Spurgeon determined he would not make that same mistake. Uh, every sermon, the gospel, every conversation, the gospel. And he did so winsomely. Uh, he loved life. He had a huge personality and a big sense of humor. Spurgeon walked into a room and the place would lighten up. And pretty soon everyone will be laughing. Uh, not, not that he was this jokester, but he just had such a happy uh, perspective and a joyful view of life. And that's something I don't always have. <laughs> uh, uh, and Spurgeon, Spurgeon had that humor and his Christ-centeredness. And that was reflected in their marriage. Both of them sought the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was king. Christ was Mm. Lord. Christ was first. Everything was about Jesus Christ. And every other thing in their life was that grew out of their Jesus being the center, being the son. Love that. That's, that's a tremendous takeaway. And, you know, I think for anybody listening to the show, you know, to just spend the time reading and learning about Charles and Susie and their life together. And, you know, you, you won't be the next Charles Spurgeon, but you can surely love your spouse the way Christ loves the church. And you can display that in the fashion that God has given and called you to do so. Um, so I want to kind of change the direction just a bit here and kind of move away from, you know, the, the books themselves. I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions about yourself uh, before we close out the show, because I kind of want to get a little bit more understanding of, you know, you and, and, and how you came to uh, do all this. So uh, you said you're a pastor and uh, I'm curious, you know, what drew you into writing about these books? Yeah. You know, I've been writing a lot. Uh, I've been writing some since high school, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is forever ago now. Uh, but nothing, uh, you know, m- much of that is uh, useful only for kindling to start a fire. Uh, but a number of years ago, I wrote a family, I wrote a series of family worship books, family worship for the Christmas season, Thanksgiving season, Reformation season. And, uh, you know, I was just sort of cutting my teeth a little bit on writing. Those were published by Solid Ground Christian Books. And um, I just had a desire to write. And I, I would do some blogging from time to time. But once I decided later in life, I'm going to go back to seminary. And, and I did that in 2013 and went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Louisville, where Dr. Moeller, Albert Moeller, is the president. I, I, I met him years and years ago. He preached at our church when I was a much younger pastor. And uh, soon after that is when he became the president of the seminary. And I determined that if I ever did go back to seminary, I wanted to, I wanted to study under his, uh, under his, at his seminary. And so I had the opportunity to do that in 2013. And the track that was on at Southern, Southern really encourages their students at every level to write. And so I already wanted to write. I went there for the purpose of, uh, fine-tuning uh, my writing abilities and learning more about writing. And it also threw me into research. I was able to, as I said, find a topic that was so f- exciting. Uh, I remember the day I determined that I wanted to write on Spurgeon and Charles and Susie's spiritual spirituality. I, I ran to the library and I said, I wonder if anybody's written anything about Charles and Susanna Spurgeon's marriage. And and I was going through uh, this computer, uh, searching on the Internet, looking through the library archives, and I was finding out nobody has done this. Uh, and that was also encouraging. I said, I have an opportunity to do something. And really, every writer wants to find a good subject, and every writer wants to, to be able to fill a void. You don't want to just uh, do something that someone else is uh, – there's plenty of out there. You know, What's the point of your book? What's the, your angle on that subject? Uh, and so I was amazed to find that I could do my doctoral thesis on their, how they approach the Bible and prayer. 
and then to start writing a number of articles for uh, B&H Academics blog uh, on Charles and Susie, and then to find out essentially that there's only been the small biography of Susanna Spurgeon in 1903, that there's never been a more exhaustive biography done of her. And so when I, again, when I was able to approach Moody with that idea, I mean, within no time, they said, yes, uh, let's do, let's do that. And so every step of the way I've been collecting books, resources. I mean, I've got my own sort of Spurgeon center in my office uh, and I've, you know, old books, uh, broken down books, uh, articles, uh, and I've just become increasingly fascinated. Uh, I don't know that I'll write about Spurgeon the rest of my life, but I could because there's there's so much there. Um, so, yeah, that all of that just sort of stirred up the fire and it, it didn't really get old. I mean, there's some tedious things about writing and editing and all, all of that. But it's uh, the subject never got old and it's still not old to me. It's so fresh and I've got new ideas about new Spurgeon projects. And uh, it's introduced me to an entire world of Spurgeon scholarship, people who are doing uh, research and writing on Spurgeon, friendships across the globe that have developed as a result of this. And so I am just so grateful. I'm a small time pastor and so thankful for the church God has placed me in. So there's nothing special about me. The Lord has been very kind to give me this opportunity, and I'm thankful uh, to Moody Publishers. I'm thankful to our church who supports me in this and my family. And I'm thankful to have a subject worthy of attention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Amen. Uh, so last question. Um, what would be advice that you would give to uh, a young or or anybody for that matter aspiring to just write books and, and you, you you nailed it i think with finding a topic that's not often talked about but it in the circles of christianity you know we we got 2000 years worth of volumes to kind of sift through and 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 really kind of lay out so what would be advice that you would give to somebody kind of looking to jump into that pool of of writing yeah i think if you want to write uh don't be obsessed initially, at least. Never be obsessed by it, but don't be overly focused. I've got, uh, I've got to get published. Publish or die. You know, <laughs> give me a give me a book or I die. There's so many avenues where you can really uh, fine tune your writing skills uh, through you know doing blogs. A lot of writers start off doing blog posts and then they get better and better and better and better and better, and uh, that opens up doors of opportunity. So a, a friend of mine who is an editor told me years ago, he said, remember when you write two things, love the Lord and love others. So you want your books to serve people. Uh, you want to write a book that uh, is is going to minister to people. It's going to be a blessing to people. For me, I'm, I'm much more interested in historical figures than I am writing, well, here's 10 steps on improving your marriage. <laughs> I'd rather say, well, here's a story of a godly marriage. What can mm-hmm. we, what can you learn from that by reading the story? That's more right. the, the way I'm, mm-hmm. the way I'm bent. And then, uh, you know, when you find, and if you have a, if you, if you're passionate about a topic, pursue it, uh, whether there's a market for it or not necessarily. I mean, one of my favorite people, I won't call his name, I don't want to embarrass him or anything, one of my favorite favorite Peter, uh, people who is a prolific author and published all the time, he writes uh, often about subjects that are very obscure. Mm-hmm. I mean, folks at least know the Spurgeon name. Some of the folks he writes about, and, and he's published uh, because he's, you know, he's a great thinker. He's a great theologian. He's a great historian. He's a, he's a great writer. Uh, so he's got, you know, he's got that. Uh, so write, find something you're interested in and pursue it. And then that may expand. And then at some point, uh, you know, if you say, you, yeah, I'd really like this to be, I'd like to publish a book, then get to know people who have written books, uh, find mm-hmm. out sort of the process, uh, get some mentors yeah. to help you along. I mean, every, for me, it really was uh, people that helped me that believed in me early on that said, I'm willing to, uh, you know, I, I had a particular friend that who was, who was, who was, uh, has been in the publishing world for a long time. He said, Hey, I know the folks over at Moody. 
I like what you're doing. I believe in your, your Spurgeon stuff. Um, let, let me introduce you to Moody. And that's really, and it was really God's providence. And I met this, I met this gentleman really, uh, I can't explain it. And God's <laughs> providence, I, I met this person and this person took a great interest in me and my writing and really went to bat uh, to introduce me to the people at Moody. And as I said, they have been, uh, I mean, I've, I don't know how other publishers are. I've had most of my experiences with Moody now, but they have been wonderful. And so find a publisher that you really can get behind and that will believe in what you're doing. And, and really what I write with the books that come out are my books. They're not trying to give me a different message. Mm-hmm. They're not trying to rewrite all of my stuff. They, they give me suggestions, my editor. Uh, and she's a wonderful editor and she gives me great suggestions and almost every time she's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and I take her suggestion, but sometimes I'll argue a point. I'll say, you know, I really want to keep this. Uh, I think this is just like it is. And they'll say, mm-hmm. okay, it's your book. Uh, we're here to support that. And so I've been blessed in, in that regard. Again, I went way too long on my answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Cause, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of times it's, it, you get those cookie cutter responses. And, and I love the fact of just, you know, I can see the passion and, and hear it in your voice and how, you know, this has really changed you as a pastor and as a husband and as a, you know, as a Christian, you know, this experience through this, um, you know, these times writing these two books. And, and I pray that, uh, whoever hears this show, uh, goes out and gets both of these books if you haven't already and, and, spends the time and reads and studies them because there's so much knowledge to be gained out of it. And, uh, Alex, can I just kind of insert go for one, one thing? Uh, you, you, you made a point that was so helpful and it really, the going back to school late in light and then writing these two books really did change me. And the folks at my church who've always appreciated my preaching and my ministry and they've loved me and they love me and now and my family, they've all said, uh, almost everyone has said that, you know, wow, this is really, uh, you know, we loved you before. <laughs> we, this is even better now. Yeah. And so I, I think if churches would catch a vision, I mean, you don't want, they don't want their pastors to be, you know, this trying to be a celebrity or, you know, or anything big name for himself. But I think churches really are blessed when they, well, whatever their pastor's gifts and talents are in ministry, and I see this as a ministry as well, part of what I do, an extension of our church. And our church has just been all in. They supported that. My going back to school, they, they encouraged me in my writing. They sent me to England twice. And again, wow. this is a small middle class church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sent me to England and to do research. One of uh, my fellow elders said, he said, you know, when you write a book, you need to get a sense of place. And so if all possible, you need to go to the place <laughs> and, and breathe the air. And he was exactly right. It made yeah. a tremendous difference. So anyway, I just want to say to any churches that are listening, please consider uh, supporting and encouraging and being a blessing to your pastor. And this will probably help your church as he expands his studies. That's what Spurgeon believed, too. Mm-hmm. And Susie gave all those books away in part because she said if pastors have better materials, they will become better pastors. Yeah, Their their churches will be stronger and the gospel will extend. And for me, that's one of the ways that my church has blessed me. I hope it has strengthened our church. And we have people that come to our church having first been introduced to my ministry through the books in some Mm -hmm. way. So I'm thankful for that. Good. Yeah, I love that. And, and I, I, you know, echo those words that for the churches out there, it, it is, exceptionally important, you know, to come in and back your pastor and, you know, support whatever gifts and whatever vision. Obviously you want that vision to be to move the gospel forward into the world. That's the premise of why these men are in the pulpits today. Uh, so again, and those are topics that we can talk for hours on, I feel. So I'm a, as we've gone over our hour mark, um, and being respectful to you and thanking you so much for joining me on this episode. And I pray that those who listen to this will go out and get this book and, uh, take this journey and learning more about Charles and Susie's 
uh, marriage and their life and their love and devotion to each other. Uh, Ray, do you have anything that you would want to add or close out with anywhere people could follow you on social media or anything of that nature? Yes, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Yours Still Heaven, the uh, untold love story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. It's available uh, everywhere tomorrow is release day. So wherever you like to get books, it'll be there. God willing. Uh, my website is, uh, you can go to susiespurgeon.com. That'll get you there or Ray Rhodes, com, And, uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, and, uh, there's a Susie Spurgeon page there. That's mine. And Instagram is just Spurgeon book, singular Spurgeon book and Twitter is also is uh is Susie Spurgeon, I think. I forget I forget all my Twitter handles. But you can find <laughs> me. Just type my name in and, and you'll find me. But thank you so much, brother. Yeah. It's good to meet you and to hear your heart and uh, you've encouraged me and blessings to you and your ministry. Yeah, and you as well. Thank you so much. I it was an honor and a pleasure to record with you. Hey guys, so thanks for tuning in. This was the end of our interview with Ray Rhodes. Uh, what an honor and a blessing to have him come on and just kind of walk through this uh, adventure he's been on writing these books. It is a pleasure to just sit and talk with him before the recording and after the recording. And everybody, please take the opportunity and go get these two books and, and you will not regret it. This one, uh, yours till heaven is, is a, a book that you will not want to miss. It will be a staple in many libraries for the years and decades to come. So if you're looking for some interesting history on Charles and Susie Spurgeon, grab these two books Susie's biography and then yours till heaven and then and you will not regret it I promise you so uh, I will make sure in the show notes to include all of the ways that you can uh, follow Ray and take a look at his public his published works so make sure you do so um guys thank you so much for tuning into this episode i hope it was edifying and enjoying and we will see you friday as we continue our walk through the eschatology series until then guys god bless and have a wonderful week Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.